Amen. Um, dismissing school-age kids to the back. Miss Robin's back there. And while they're doing that, let me invite you, if you brought your Bible with you, to open to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, is where we'll be today, 2 Corinthians 2. <clears throat> I'm excited to be here today, excited to share with you. Uh, looks like on uh, our 11th anniversary, we got some uh, fancy new things. We got like a real like thing to preach from here. Um, which, you know, you might should be nervous. That might mean I go a long time. I have no idea. Uh, we also got this, I don't know who brought this. This is like a little fancy guitar hanger thing. Like we're, we're like professional, man. <clears throat> Just took us 11 years. It's fine. <clears throat> um, I'm excited to be here uh, celebrating 11 years. Such a testament to God's sustaining grace. The investment that you guys have made that others have made, that have moved on from here. I got emotional several times this week just thinking about, man, God's grace and mercy, so tangible, um, so undeserved. And yet he just, what does John say? Just grace upon grace. He just keeps pouring it out on us. Um, one of my mentors used to say, everything you need is either in the hands of the people or it's in the harvest. And God has proven that to be so true. Every time that we run out of money and we, we have to up that uh, urgency on that prayer life a little bit. God just, uh, he just comes through again and, uh, and again. We announced uh, last year our 10 and 10 goals. And um, uh, you can, uh, we probably still have those things. We can show you kind of what our goals are. We talk about them every once in a while. But we're still, uh, I think, ahead of schedule even on those. God's just doing some incredible things since this time last year. Uh, we bought a piece of property to build a building on one day, so we're pretty excited about that. At least the cargo team is. They're real excited. Um, uh, people going out for ministry and mission. We were able to ordain Connor a couple weeks ago. Um, we've had people step up as VIPs at the Hub. Pretty incredible what they're doing. It's just really, really cool what God's done. So I want to share a few uh, new things today, but... <clears throat> mostly just refresh on the things that we've been talking about for the last for the last 11 years. Last October, um, I got stuck in the book of 2 Corinthians, um, and I have not left it. Uh, not stuck because I was confused, just stuck because these, I felt like God was just speaking directly to me. You ever find something in God's word? It, it says it's living and active, and it just kind of, <clears throat> I don't know how you describe it, that you have... <clears throat> excuse me, special enlightenment or um, these words that you've read so many times just kind of grab your mind and grab your heart in a way that you've never seen them before. And this happened to me, and I want to share one of those passages you say, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. If you've never read through the book of 2 Corinthians, I encourage you to do it. Uh, 1 Corinthians is good too. Paul's just fussing at him the whole time in 1 Corinthians. Um, <clears throat> good book though. Uh, 2 Corinthians so many good things in here about the, um, just so many great phrases. We don't have time to get to all those. Let me read uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse, uh, starting at verse 14. <clears throat> but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ 
to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let me pray. God, I pray uh, today that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, as we open it, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction and encouragement. Uh, Help us to see ourselves in light of it. Help us to see the greater call in our lives as as we read. Um, Holy Spirit, you know what's going on in our own hearts. I pray that you would take your inspired word, your words to us, and press it upon our hearts. In a very unique way, in Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. I love this passage because if you read through 2 Corinthians, Paul has had just, I mean, just the craziest life. Uh, He talks about uh, receiving the lashes, even the lashes that that Jesus got 40 minus 1 five times, being shipwrecked multiple times, spending a night at sea, always in danger. He just paints this like crazy, scary picture. And, and here in chapter 2, he's talking about this. He's really talking in the context of relationships. And then he gets to this, this passage and to describe all these things that have happened to him and all the pressures and the enemies without and the enemies within and all the difficulties and trials and disappointments that he's walked through one after another. And certainly the church at Corinth is going through the same thing as they're being ostracized from their community. They're being kicked out of, uh, of the marketplace for their decision to follow Jesus. I mean, It's just a bad situation. And then Paul describes all of that like a victory parade. And at first you think that maybe he's just a little out of touch. The best image, Paul, that you can come up with is this triumphal procession, this victory parade, enemies on every side, feeling of despair and discouragement everywhere. And you describe it as a victory parade. And not just that, but as he says, we follow Christ in this triumphal procession. Look at that other part. And through us, he would say in in the next chapter, two chapters down in chapter 4, these jars of clay. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Think about that. This week I traveled to serve our church planters. And uh, both of these occasions happened. You ever got into an elevator um, after someone else? They weren't in there anymore. And um, the smell of them being there was still there. Both good and bad. And both of those happened uh, the last day that I was there. I walked in. I was like, man, some lady's wearing a lot of perfume. I mean, she, you could smell it. And then someone else left something else in the elevator one time for me. And you could, you could smell it still. Um, the fragrance, right? That, that would lead us, that we leave where we go. Think about that. A few weeks ago, I had uh, coffee or lunch with my mom. I don't remember. And then I came home, and uh, I'm giving my kids hugs when I came home. And one of the kids, I don't remember who it was, said, uh, did you see Grammy today? You smell just like her. And I thought, that's cool how your fragrance, right, um, goes further sometimes than you do, remains. This is the, the picture he's giving that, We spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere we go. 
our sense of smell. It's one of those powerful senses we have. You can smell something 20 years later and it take you back in a moment to where you first smelled that. And Paul's vision here for the church at Corinth, he's reminding them really of their gospel identity, is those whose lives were radically changed by Christ would be radically changed. And their changed lives would spread this aroma in verse 15. We're this aroma of Christ. That we would fill the earth with the aroma of Christ. Remember, this was God's vision from even the beginning that all of his creation would reflect the glory of Christ throughout the world. He created them in his image and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and to cultivate the earth. And they were to spread the image bearers of God everywhere they went. They would take the image of God with them. Of course, you know, sin interrupted that and distorted the image of God. And this is really the narrative of God through all of Scripture. You see it in the beginning. You see it in about five or six other just very specific places. There's chaos. And into chaos, God speaks and brings order. And then man rebels against God. And then we return to chaos. In the beginning, the earth was without form and void. It was chaos. There was no order. And then God spoke into creation, including us, and giving us this job and walked with our parents, Adam and Eve, in the cool of the day. And then rebellion, they sinned, distorting the image of God, breaking relationship with him, and then it returned to chaos. And you see this over and over and over and over and over. As God calls his people, and they're going to make a nation, and He's going to deliver them from Israel, and he's going to do all these incredible things, and then they choose to go their own way, rebel, and then there's chaos again. And we see this played out over and over and over. But Habakkuk, and we're going to get to him uh, uh, later on uh, this year. We're actually going to be doing a series through the Minor Prophets. Habakkuk 2 has this vision from the Lord, this prophet of God. It says in verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. What an image. You ever been on a cruise or deep sea fishing somewhere, and as far as you can see, there's just water everywhere. And this is the image that Habakkuk has, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Every part of them. What an image. And this is what Paul is emphasizing as believers, that we take what God has done in us and then through us, we bring the fragrance or the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. So in our 11th anniversary, what I want to do is reiterate the areas that we are intentionally working to spread the aroma of Christ We're intentionally working to spread the glory of God in these specific areas and in these specific ways. And I'm going to do this under the three directions that we talk about all the time. Maybe three rhythms, the up, the in, and the outs. As we look at the life of Jesus, as Jesus even taught us, he kind of taught us to live out in these three directions. Which I like this because it's it's so simple. A lawyer came to Jesus one time and says, uh, teacher, tell me, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, well, first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the 
That's the up. And then he said to love your neighbor as yourself. And that, that's, that's the out because we know the guy said, well, then who is my neighbor? And he told this phenomenal story about the Good Samaritan, someone who was so different and in a different geographical region. And basically he was saying, you know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is everyone. And you're to love them. That's the out dimension. And then he would later say in John 13, this new command I have for you, that you love one another. And so we take these three commandments of Jesus and they help me think through, even in my day, I pray this way. I start in the morning and I pray, I pray up and then at noontime I pray out and a lot of times I'll walk around a place or walk up and down Home Depot aisles uh, and that's what I do and I just pray out. I pray for people I know who don't know Jesus. I pray for our city. I, I pray for the people I come in contact with and then in the, in the end of the day I pray in. I pray for my DG, people in my DG, the guys in my DG and our, our, our group that meets and my kids and, and their connections. So just as a way of uh, refreshing your memory about that, I want to talk about that with some goals that we have for ourselves this year. First, and this first direction up, to put a phrase, pursuing the presence of God. That we would pursue the presence of God. There's this time in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel has sinned, if you remember this, as Moses is leading them out of Egypt and they've sinned. And God's so angry with them, he can't even be with them. And God says, you know what, I'm going to give you a blessing and you can go ahead on without me and the promised land can still be yours, but I'm not going to go lest I kill you. And Moses says, God, we would rather stay in the wilderness without you than to go and to the promised land we'd rather stay in the wilderness with you than to go in the promised land without you and it's this incredible moment where you see Moses fighting after pursuing the presence of God we see it in David as he pursued the presence of God and I want us as a church to commit that this year we're going to pursue the presence of God even as Sabrina talked about, we're going to pursue that presence of God in our meetings, in our gatherings, in our time with him as we get into the word of God. And we're really going to do that in three ways. First is through the word of God. Friends, I love the word of God. When we started our church, that was one of the phrases we used. We want to make much of what God makes much about. And he speaks to us through the word. We know who God is through the person of Jesus, and we know who the person of Jesus is through the revealed word of God, illuminated by the Spirit, but it's in the word of God that we know who God is. Psalms 119, 47. I want you to know, I want you to love the word of God. Psalms 119, the psalmist says, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Can you say that about your own life, that you love the word of God? This week we celebrated Claire's 14th birthday. And uh, she didn't want to go out to eat. She wanted to, she wanted to pick the menu and we would have it at the house. She wanted fajitas and special kind of white queso and a cheesecake. And that's what we got. And as we were eating it, we were thinking, now oh, you're all hungry, right? Like, okay, shut up, pastor. Let's go eat. Um, they were incredible. We just ate and just like filled ourselves and every bite. We're like, man, this is incredible. I love this. The psalmist says the thing that he loved was the word of God. He just loved it. 
It was like honey to the lips. It was sweet. I will lift my hands to your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. Psalms 1 says the man that's happy and blessed is the man who delights in the word of God. Delights. And I don't know how to really explain that to you other than, you ever binge watched a show? Like, oh, I don't know what to watch today. And then you got one and then it got you hooked. And then you're like, oh, well, who needs to go to bed at a decent time? I can watch one more and then one more. And if you're on Netflix, they do it for you, right? Five, four, three, two, we're in it again. Let's go again. We're, okay, who needs to sleep? We'll just drink a lot of coffee. But then you start to, like, think your character's in the show. You ever done this? You're, like, you're like dreaming about them. Um, That's the best I could explain of the, the, the psalmist's desire for the word of God. He just loved it. That's what he would sing. Better is one day in your courts, O God, than a thousand days elsewhere. Let me just pursue the presence of God. God's word's incredible. It guides us. Colossians 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It gives us wisdom. It guides us. God's word feeds us. Jeremiah 15 says this, when your words came to me, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. God's word strengthens us. Psalms 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to the word of God? I seek you with all my heart. Don't let me stray from your commands. He says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. God's word gives us strength. It feeds us. It guides us. Friends, we're going to go hard. We're going to preach God's word. And I want you to desire it and to love it and to talk about it in your DGs and to let it read you as much as you read it and to confront you and to convict you and to encourage you. This is the promise of God's word as he speaks to us through the Bible. But not just the word of God. In this pursuing the presence of God, we're going to be people of the word and we're going to be people of prayer. We've been praying every day at 307. I hope you're still praying from Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel gets this vision of these dry bones in this valley. God tells Ezekiel to speak to the bones, and they become skeletons, but no flesh. And then they speak to the bones again, and God breathes life into them. We've been praying that prayer, spiritual renewal. The dry bones would come back to life. I love that song we just sing, Graves in the Gardens. And some of you sing that with, some of you sing that a little louder than others because you've been in the grave. And you've seen what God has done in a wound in your life and he's made it a scar and he's healed it over. And now it's a trophy of grace. And sometimes it's, it's your main avenue of ministry to look back at what God's done as as he healed and reconciled and restored, and now it's this beautiful trophy of grace in your life. I pray that we would develop at our church a culture of prayer, praying for spiritual renewal, intercessory prayer. It's amazing how quickly that we forget that prayer is our primary weapon against the darkness that's all around us. We love the preaching or the fellowship, the worship, the sensational things even of the Christian faith, and those are not bad. They're essential, yes. But how quickly do we move past the primary means in which we move things in the spiritual realm, and that's through prayer. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of what? 
prayer, not preaching, not worship. I love those things. But his concern was that his house would be a house of prayer. It would be the place that when we gather together, and of course it's not a building, it's a people. But when we gather together as a people, one of the primary things that we do is we are in the world but not of the world. We, we, are, we are the new temple where people come to connect to God while living in the world. It's this incredible picture of the people of God coming together to be a house of prayer. Paul reminded the Ephesian church after emphasizing the armor of God, you remember that, the the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. He goes on and on. Surely maybe if you've been at church, you learned that in Sunday school or VBS on a little felt board or something. He ends that talking about prayer in Ephesians 6. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And I want to encourage you and we as a staff want to give you more opportunities that we would develop and grow in our prayer life. That prayer is not the last resort, but it's the first step. That you would begin to wake up every morning and cry out to God before you ever get out of bed and you would say, God, my life for your will. I'm surrendering myself to you again today. That prayer of surrender would begin our day and the prayer of intercession and sustenance and provision would just flow off of our lips. I read one time this pastor said you can Tell how popular your church is by who comes on Sunday mornings and how popular your pastor is by who comes on Sunday nights. We don't really have Sunday night meetings anymore, but you can tell how popular God is by who shows up to pray. It's convicting. Prayer is not the thing that we add on to the other things. Prayer is the thing. It's us communicating with God. It's us crying out. It's the fellowship of the broken coming together at an impasse and saying, God, we have have nothing else. It's only you. You, You've got to show up. Develop a culture of prayer. We want to continue to develop a culture of worship, worshiping from the heart. Of course, worship is more than singing But it's not less than singing, and we worship God through our obedience in so many areas of life, and worship God through generosity, and worship God through the word, all of those things. But specifically, I I, want to create a culture of worship. It's amazing to me how we can get emotionally moved by so many things in our life. I was watching the Cowboys do a terrible display of themselves last Sunday on an airplane And I'm shouting at Dak from the airplane seat. And we can get so caught up in so many things. And yet we come here. Ascribing to God his greatness, blessing him. And we got our arms crossed. I don't know what what is going, what is the, what is the division there? We We've been taught that we can't lift our voices up to God. But God made us a singing people. That's why he said even last week, we talked about it in the Psalms 96, sing a new song. In Psalms 40, a new song. 
He says in Colossians that we're to address each other with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We're, the whole book of the Psalms is the singing that the people of God would do from place to place. That Psalms 119 that we read a minute ago, that they would sing this about the word of God. God made us a singing people. One theologian says when we sing, we're praying twice. We pray with our minds and our hearts. But you know, when we sing together, it's the only time as we're singing unto the Lord, that's really, it's really praying, we're communicating to God. It's the only time that the gathered body is praying the same words at the same time. That's what we do when we sing. Over the last 11 years, we've had some really rough, rough parts. Some difficult times. Times when I was confused or hurting or grieving. We moved here and I guess Claire was two and Ellie was about to be one. We've watched them grow up here. Some of your kids have grown up here, been through seasons of difficulty, seasons of victory. The ones I remember probably the most are the, are the hurting seasons. Ashley and I had a miscarriage during that time. My dad died. Many other difficulties we walked through that I don't want to bring up. But I knew in my heart that if I could just get here on Sunday morning, You know what the book of Psalms is? It's just, a, it's just an illustration of some things you just got to worship your way through. If I could just get here on Sunday morning, especially if I didn't have to preach, and I could just sit right there and I could sing with my family, that Jesus is better. If I could sing with my family, there's nothing better than you. You turn mourning into dancing. It's just something to it. Declaring the goodness of God in the midst of our grief. I want to worship from the heart. Second direction is our in the intentional community. This new command I give to you, Jesus says, to love one another. He would go on to say, there's 41, at least 41 one another's in the New Testament. Many of them mentioned twice, so there's really probably more than that. And I use this word intentional community. Because I'm not talking about the community that, like, people make TV shows about. I call it intentional community because relationships naturally stay pretty surface. And we talk about sports, and we talk about the weather, and we talk about how much our job sucks. But a lot of times we don't get to that heart level, even like Sabrina was talking about. We don't, we don't get to the deeper things of what we're fearful of, the vision that God has placed in our heart, what he's calling us to do, what he's calling us to sacrifice, what the confession of sin. Most of the time we don't, we don't get to that. It takes real intentional community. And again, Jason preached about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a whole ton of time here. But I do want you to notice that as we pursue the face and presence of God, the overflow of that is a deep love for other people. That's why he says in 1 John, don't say you love God but hate your brother. You're a liar. And we exposed on social media this year 
how much of a liar a lot of us are. Because you can't say you love God and hate your brother. None of this is easy. And you know why it's not easy? Because we have an enemy. We have a real enemy, and his goal is to defame the name and power of God in any way he can. Jesus told us that he's come in John 10, that we would have life and life overflowing and life abundant. But even in the same sentence as he says that, he talks about the enemy. But the thief has come, what, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he does not want you to go deep in gospel intentional community with anyone. This is why it's so easy to get offended. Someone says something the wrong way, talks about something the wrong way, looks at you the wrong way, doesn't make the gluten-free thing that you want. What, does he not care about me or makes only gluten-free stuff? I mean, we're in a free country. Let's have some bacon. Let's have some bacon sandwiches. None of this is easy because you have an enemy against you. He goes on even in this very chapter. In verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We are not ignorant, he says, of his schemes. He's talking about relational conflict, even here in this. That there's an enemy that's come along, that he's trying to thwart and stop the plan of God and fulfillment and abundance in your own life. And he's going to do that really in four ways. He says we're not ignorant of his design, his schemes. He does it first with distraction. Let's just distract and he's working so hard. We got devices in our hand that distract us constantly. We got media coming at us every way. He, if he can just distract us, I heard a pastor say that the church should be primed. The fields are ripe with harvest, are ripe for harvest, and the church should be doing what 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 the bride of Christ should do. But I'm fearful that we've all just been lulled to sleep through the distraction of the enemy. Just think about. The big things that you've made little and the little things that you've made so big. He wants to distract you from the most important things in life. Numbing your mind with the algorithms on a smartphone. Numbing your heart with trivial things. He's just going to leave you in that state. Filling your life with all these worthless things over and over. So that you never have the power or the discernment or the wisdom or the passion in your heart to make significant difference in the things that really matter in life. To ask your kids one day, tell me about your dad's love for the Lord. Oh, well, you know, I guess it was there, but, you know, he, he, he loved the NFL a lot more. I could tell it in the way that he acted. He wants to distract you. He wants to deceive you. If he can distract you, he's certainly moving to his second scheme, which is deceiving you, to convince you that if you just had more money, that your life would be better. If you just had the next thing, then you would be happy. The Bible calls this idolatry. Anything that competes with the glory of God. And maybe we don't worship idols created with human hands like they did, a little statue of, of Baal. But we do worship things like quartz countertops and new cars and promotions. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But friends, when you put your hope in those things, as that's going to give your life significance and meaning, it robs you of joy. You've been deceived. Funny thing is how easy it is to notice idolatry in someone else's life. 
and how hard it is to see it in your own. This is why we need friends who can tell us the truth. Who speaks truth to you? No, like real truth. Who speaks truth to you? Maybe your spouse. Maybe a pastor. You need three or four friends in your life who care more about you following hard after God than they do the friendship with you. Who with grace, absolutely takes a lot of grace, can speak hard truths to you. The enemy doesn't want that. That's why he tries to deceive us and distract us. And if he can't do that, he'll go on to the next and he'll try to divide us. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in this book. He even starts this book talking about this schism in the church. He wants to divide your relationships. The last thing he wants is unity in the church. Because what did Jesus say? It's our love for one another displayed through real, intimate, deep relationships that convey to the rest of the world that we're really his disciples. And so it makes sense that that's what he comes after. If I can just divide you, if I can divide husband and wife, if I can divide parents and kids, if I can divide neighbors and neighbors, anything I can do, if I can divide race and race, if I can divide socioeconomic lines, any place that I can find division, the enemy is going to find division. And he does it with that spirit of offense. And you get so upset, and he's just pouring gas on that fire. How dare they say that? I can't believe they didn't call me. Why didn't they show up? They knew I was sick. Why didn't they bring something to me? I brought something to them. Why they don't care about me? It just festers. Just, in the time when you're thinking about nothing, that becomes the thing you're thinking about. How dare they? That little spirit of offense grows and grows into unforgiveness, into bitterness. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs, it says there are six things that God hates and seven that are abomination to him. And the last one that he says there, which is really the one, if you look at that literary way, he does that six thing he hates, seven things abomination. It's the seventh thing that actually is the unifier of all the things. And that seventh thing is the one who sows discord among his brothers. The one who allows a spirit of offense and passes it on to other people. Hey, can, can you believe that? Jerry did that to me. Can you believe that? He says that's an abomination to the Lord. The enemy divides relationships. He tries to deceive us. He tries to distract us. And his end goal is destruction. If he can destroy your marriage, if he can destroy your relationship with your kids, if he can destroy your witness at work, he just wants to bring destruction everywhere he goes. He just destroys everything. And he does all this, not really because he hates you, but because he hates Jesus. And he knows that Jesus loves you. And then if he hurts Jesus, he can hurt him by hurting you. And even in doing that, he can keep the message of the gospel from going forward. So I say all that just to echo what Paul says. We're not, we're not unaware of his schemes. He might be cunning and he might be sly, but he does the same thing over and over and over and over again. This year, my prayer is that we would pursue intentional community. We really do that three ways, and I'm just going to touch on these super fast. We do it through our missional communities. You saw a quick little kind of blurb about that uh, this morning with Jamie and Sabrina. Our, our spiritual, I mean, our, our missional community, and the, they're really just a, little, a house church is what they are. I mean, we try to use fancy names to make us sound fancy, but they're just a house church. It's just, it's just, it's just people coming together to, to be a spiritual family, to live out the one another's of Scripture, 
You, you can't really do that on a Sunday morning. It's hard for you to actually help carry my burden on a Sunday morning. But my guys and my little DG, they help carry my burdens every week. We text each other when we're discouraged, when we're tempted, when we're overwhelmed, when we're in the funk, when we're having good days too. A spiritual family living out those 41 one another's of scripture. It's a safe space for the lost to find community, to see the gospel work. A lot of times people are attracted to gospel community. Let me see if this thing is real before they're attracted to the gospel. That certainly was true in the book of Acts. Who are these untrained men, the Pharisees would say? Walking in the power of the Spirit. Doing life together. We do this through our discipleship groups. We used to call them huddles. You call them whatever you want. They're just a few guys or a few gals that get together and we read God's word and we encourage each other. And we ask the question, what's God asking you to do through the word of God and how are you going to do that? Real koinonia, that's the word that scripture uses for fellowship. A place, a safe place where we can be honest about our weaknesses. We can pray for each other, encourage each other. And then we do that through serving the body of Christ, intentional community. A lot of you are in a, in a missional community, and you don't know the other people in this church because you're doing life so tightly with them, and that's a great thing. But as we serve the body of Christ, the larger body of Christ, we're able to walk further and further in community. The third direction, and I'll get close to the end, is the outward direction, to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus would say it. I like the word sacrificial mission. And I don't want that word to scare you, but I do want it to challenge you. Because it's so easy for us to make everything, even so-called mission trips, about us. Jesus would use the phrase that we picked up on and use it a lot, a heart for the last, the lost, and the least. What kind of church are we if we've got this burning heart for God? Diving deep in the community, but never outward. And we, we miss a good chunk of the gospel. The gospel is meant to work in us and through us outward. Jesus tells this beautiful passage of uh, the invitation to the banquet, the great banquet. You remember that? And all the people he invited, he said no one, no one could come. So he sent them out and said, I want you to go out to the edges and the highways and the hedges, and I want you to invite them in. It's a picture of this invitational life, and this is what we should be as a church. We're inviting people in. The last. The last are those who are the last to come to mind. They're the last to be reached. No one wants to be last. You know there's still 7,000 unreached people groups around the world? 7,000. They define that as less than 1% of them are evangelical Christians, that they've heard and believed the true gospel, less than 1%. The crazy story is that now America is the fourth largest evangelism, uh, fourth largest mission field in the world as we are moving further and further away from Christ. God loves them. They're living in spiritual darkness, no church to attend to even if they wanted to, no concept of Jesus, no followers of Jesus to watch, just living in darkness. And we're praying that God raises up and sends missionaries out from our church to go to those people. And some of you got no clue, and you're it. This year, maybe even, God's going to begin to tug on your heart to go and to serve 
the last. And if he's not calling you to do that, he's certainly calling you to support it. We've got missionaries there on the ground that are serving in some pretty scary places. And I don't want them to be out of sight, out of mind. I want them to be very near and dear to our heart. Jamie's been trying to encourage our church to do the day of prayer and fasting for this unreached people group that we've adopted. And we're talking about it in staff meeting, and it just such convicted my heart because I said, there's no way we're going to be able to get our faith family to fast a day a month and pray for those people that they've never seen and never heard. And that's an indictment on us that we don't have a heart for the last or the lost. Those all around us who are very near to the gospel, but they've never experienced the gospel. They've never seen it lived out. These are our neighbors and our co-workers, people who aren't following Jesus, people who had a bad church experience and walked away from the whole thing. Again, we're well on our way to becoming an unreached people group ourselves. But the unique thing is you don't have to learn a new language or even a new culture to reach them. You just got to open up your home. You just got to make life not about you. God's been working in my own heart here. I was talking to him on this recent trip I went on and just made this commitment that at least once a week, I'm going to invite someone across the line of faith. Did it yesterday at Starbucks. Just invited somebody across the line of faith. I'm not saying they all will. I don't know if they ever will, but I'm going to keep inviting them to take a step across the line of faith. And maybe you would do that this year too. That there'd be someone in your life that you've been investing in, that you've been loving on. Maybe it's someone you've been working with or lived next to for a long time. And my encouragement to you would be this year that you would ask them, you would invite them to step across the line of faith. You could do that in numerous different ways, and we hope to train you on some of that. But a heart for the last, a heart for the lost. And finally, a heart for the least. The least of these in our eyes, the prisoner, the hungry, the sick, the naked, the poor. These people are hard to love a lot of times. So different than us. But they're very near and dear to the heart of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 25, he's talking about the parable of talents. He said, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous, talking about the end time, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you as sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. I've said in my own mind and heart, but these people don't deserve this. And God's so quick to remind me, Luke, what part of salvation do you deserve? Literally none. But for the grace of God. These are our downtown friends. These are kids that are in foster care. These are kids who are in orphanages overseas. These are people who need a home, people in prison, people who are sick. 
This is the least of these. This is the forgotten. This is who God is calling us to do. How invalid is our Christianity if we say, man, I love God and I love people, but those people can go to hell. Friends, that is, that is a dangerous mindset. This year, in our 11th years of church, I pray that we become advocates for those people without families, those without homes, those without the gospel, those without hope. My prayer is that you and me will take real faith steps this year. My encouragement is that you would take a faith step even today. Let me go back to our text just real quick and we'll be done. Miles and the band can come on up. We're not doing communion today. I just want to give you some time right where you're at to think through what step is God putting in front of me? But thanks be to God, Paul says, who in Christ leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is a battle term. When the generals would come back from war, that they would come back and they would have a triumphal procession through town. We start with the senators in the front. And then right behind them, the spoils of the war. And then right, 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 right behind them would be the prisoners who had been captive. And then riding right behind them would be the army. And then finally, the generals of the war. And they would ride right through town. In this incredible display of victorious might. And this is the image that Paul uses of us as we walk through this world. That we, we walk in victory. Even through our brokenness we walk in victory. Friends, you got anything to sing about today? Has the grace of God been very real and near and dear to you? I love this in the first part of that verse, who in Christ always leads us. I think about what Jesus' voice sounded like as they left that upper room. He's singing the words about him in Psalms 118, Psalms 119, the great Hallel. I'm going to pray for us, and if you'll just take a minute, just right where you're at. Would you just ask God what step he's put in front of you? Maybe yours is in that upward dimension, direction, that you need to take a step in really pursuing the presence of God. Maybe there's some sin in your life you need to confess, something you've been calling a struggle for a long time, and it's, it's time to quit babying that thing. It's time just to pull it out into the light. To make war on it is separating you from communing with God. Maybe it's just your discipline of knowing him in the word or spending time worshiping him. What is the thing? Hebrews says that if you seek him with all your heart, you're going to find him. What's keeping you from seeking the face of God? Maybe it's that inward dimension. You just People are just too much. You just don't want to go deep with anybody. Maybe you've been burned or you've been hurt. 
But this is the natural overflow of what God does in us is we, 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 we love other people. We deeply love them. Maybe it's that outward dimension. Somebody serving the hub tonight, maybe you just jump in with them. Maybe there's other people that God's put on your heart. God, thank you for today. We, we lay ourselves before you. Every good thing that has ever come into my life, certainly ever come into this church, has been because of you. You've, you're the creator and originator of all the good things. So we thank you for that. And we know you lead us, and you're putting steps in front of us even today. As you lead us, Christ, our King, as you lead us, help us to step for step follow you where you're leading us.